Bibles, go ahead and take them in your hands or, or turn them on or open them up to Romans chapter 1, the, the book of Romans, the, the letter or the epistle we call it to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 1. Now, I, I actually did the math and I didn't know how many, so I had to count but this year is my 30th year as a lead pastor of a church. That means that I have preached uh, at least, because some, some years you give two or three messages to it, but I have preached 30 different uh, Christmas sermons, uh, sermons immediately before Christmas. And, and uh, today I'm going to, this is the 30th year, and I, that's a lot. That's a lot of Christmases uh, uh, by the way, you heard Pastor Brad mention earlier about the Christmas Eve service. We are going to meet for the one hour. We're going to look at the Gospels of Matthew and Luke where it gives the, the Christmas story, the true story of Jesus' birth and the circumstances surrounding that. And you're going to hear a lot of music. A lot of people are prepared. There's going to be a whole lot of people here. And, uh, and, and I look forward to that. Join us. Five o'clock, we begin, try and finish up right around six because I know that there's a lot happening that evening in your homes, but Romans chapter one. Now, even before we read, let me say this about Romans chapter one. In all of these years of bringing Christmas sermons prior to Christmas, uh, I, I've never started in Romans chapter one because Romans chapter one, and you're going to see this early on here, is, is kind of a dark portion of scripture. Uh, it, it's truth, but it's, it's, not, it's not really celebrating anything. It's, it's talking about how things were. And, and a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago, when I was praying about this service, the Holy Spirit clearly directed me to go in and, and, and look at this. And I thought, this is a strange place to begin a Christmas service or a Christmas sermon. And yet then I thought, well, you know, okay, it's strange. Well, this has been kind of an odd year. How many know what I'm talking about? And, and if it's ever going to fit, then right here. But I, in obedience to the Lord, I, I want to look here at Romans chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is inspiring the, the Apostle Paul to write this in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now just pause there for a moment. He's writing here how nature itself reveals God's power and his character. Have you ever done this? You're out in a beautiful place, probably out in the country, maybe near some mountains or a lake or some beautiful vista, and, and you look around and you say, wow, God, this is beautiful. What a wonderful part of creation. Maybe you've stood on top of a mountain and you've looked and you can see so far, and yet knowing that that's just a portion of God's creation, and you go, wow, God, your power is awesome. You created all of this with a word. This is, what, this is a kind of what Paul is saying here, that, that, that God's power and his character are revealed in the world in which we see. Now, 2,000 years after this was written, 
what we know about life on a, on a cosmic level, right, on a, on a universal level, understanding things about the universe that, that they didn't understand 2,000 years ago, and uh, that's the bigness of it. And then also on the other side, the smallness of it, what we know on a cellular level, what we know about things like human DNA, things that Paul could not know, all of those discoveries, all of that new information, not new to God, but new to us, all of that only further confirms the power and the character of God. We look at creation and we go, wow, God, the complexity of human DNA, the complexity of this universe, and all of it just, just yells out, there is a creator. Talks about the power and the character of God. But Paul here in Romans chapter 1, looking back, at the history of humanity and looking around him, Paul was amazed by mankind's tendency to worship something or someone other than God. Interesting, isn't it? He, he's looking around and, and he's amazed at how while all of God's creation points to him, how people have this tendency to go and worship something else. In verse 21, Paul wrote this, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking, so this is with their minds, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we have the mind and we have the heart. Their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and the birds and animals and reptiles. Many years ago, while I was studying at the University of Minnesota, the program that I was in required me to take a, a comparative religions class. Uh, a comparative religions class gives an overview of various world religions. I went into this and I, I was very interested in taking that even though it was required, but I recall spending in that, in that class or the series of classes uh, over the course of that semester, I recall spending about 20 minutes on Christianity and many hours devoted to other religions. I thought that was rather interesting. But as we studied those other religions, you may think, well, that's not a very good thing to study. No, it was, for me, it was a very good thing to study because as we studied those other religions, I wondered why people were drawn to those religions. The more I studied them, the more I learned about them, I kept wondering again and again, what is the draw? What is the attraction? What's the appeal? What's the appeal to those cruel and, and, and petty, really, deities that, that, that those false religions put forward? I, I, was, I was amazed, truly amazed at how uh, vile and destructive those, those false belief systems could be. For me, it was a very good study because the more I looked at it, the more I realized what's the attraction, what's the draw these gods, small g, lowercase g, the, these gods are cruel, they're vindictive, they're petty, they're jealous, they're destructive, they're vile, they're perverse. What's the draw? 
So this is what Paul is talking about here. Paul is looking at his world, and he's amazed as well. He's looking around at his world, and he's amazed at how, how God in his very nature the, uh, it points to his power, and yet people go to these false gods. He was amazed as well. Again, in verse 22, he wrote how they claimed to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now understand where Paul is. He's looking around. This is first century Roman Empire. And the Greek pantheon or the Greek collection of gods the Greek collection of gods that had, had been uh, adopted and then adapted by, uh, by Romans uh, was usually the first false religion that Christians encountered because it was so prevalent. I, I mean, for, for, every, for every Christian at, during Paul's time uh, that, that worshiped the one true God, there were probably near the beginning thousands of people maybe tens of thousands. For every one Christian, there were tens of thousands of persons who worshipped Zeus or one of the other gods. Many, many practitioners of that religion resisted, sometimes violently, the message of Jesus Christ because they had so much to lose. This was the first religion encountered by believers because it was so prevalent. Yet, those persons, those persons in that Greek pantheon, this false religion and others, those persons were among the first persons set free when they heard about the one true God. When they heard that Jesus came and that Jesus forgives and that Jesus loves and that he provides and that he protects and delivers and supernaturally directs people, well, it's no wonder they praised him. When they began to hear of the one true God and his care and concern, how contrary to what they had been used to in their false gods, when they heard about this, they said, we're going to worship him. We're going to serve him and we are going to praise him. When they heard the message of Jesus Christ, it resonated in their spirits and they knew this is of God. It's no wonder they praised him. It's no wonder they responded in the thousands, right? Paul would go in, the other apostles would go in, the disciples would go in, and they would begin to share the message of Jesus Christ, and not only scores, but hundreds and even thousands of people would respond to the message of Jesus Christ. It didn't matter that regardless of their language or their history or their culture, none of those things mattered. It's no wonder people gave their lives to him. And then after they gave their lives to him, it's not surprising that many then went on to give their lives for him. You see, you won't give your life for him unless you give your life to him. But once they gave their lives to him and they experienced him, not just something in their futile thinking, as Paul wrote, not just something in, their, in their, their whacked out belief system, but rather in their minds and in their hearts, they experienced new life in Jesus Christ. And they said, this is absolute truth and this is who we will serve. And we'll die for him if necessary. This message of Jesus 
This message of Jesus that we hear in 21st century America may be so familiar with that we forget just how wonderful this message is. We can be so familiar with Jesus and his true story that we overlook the wonder of his story. I'm guilty. I'm so familiar. I, I don't remember the first time I heard about Jesus. I don't. I, I, I grew up, my parents were believers, and I, I heard this early on, and I don't remember when I didn't know about Jesus, but, but I can overlook the wonder of it. How much of his life, in so many ways, is a study in contrasts. For example, Jesus was born in a borrowed stable. Right? I mean, Jesus, the, the, the expression, were you born in a barn? Jesus was born in a barn. And then, after being born, the Bible tells us that he was placed in a borrowed manger, a, a feed trough. It's not a crib. It's a feed trough. It's where, it's where barn animals put their mouth and they eat food. For lack of someplace else, Jesus was placed in a feed trough. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was born in a borrowed barn and placed in a borrowed manger. Here's the contrast. Nine months earlier, Jesus had lived in the splendor of heaven. See, unlike you and I, we had a beginning, and that's at conception, but, but Jesus had no beginning. He always was. And prior to his conception becoming flesh within the womb of Mary, Jesus lived in the splendor of heaven. He always was. Lived in the splendor of heaven nine months later, placed in a borrowed manger. Jesus' birth was observed by just two people, Mary and Joseph. The shepherds weren't there yet. They, they came later that night. The wise men were not there. Uh, they, they came later, weeks or, or even months later. And yet, even though there were just two people who observed Jesus' birth, all of heaven rejoiced and all of heaven was watching when Jesus arrived. What a contrast. <coughs> it says here that, that Jesus came in such humble fashion, this is partly why we praise him still. This is partly why we praise him still. How many of you, just with a showing of hands, and everybody in your family, if it applies, can raise your hand, but how many here in, in this room have some form of a nativity set on your lawn or in your home or in a picture? Come on, let me see your hands, yeah. We've got, we've got a couple of them. We're so familiar with that story and the beauty of it, and it is beautiful, that we forget about the wonder of it. The Son of God came in a born in a borrowed stable, placed in a borrowed manger, but all of heaven rejoiced. Two people observed, yet all of heaven observed. 
The Bible says that as a boy, Jesus asked questions that amazed scholars. And as an adult, he taught things that no one had ever heard. He worked miracles unlike anyone had ever seen. But never, here's the contrast, but he never worked a miracle for himself. It was always about someone else. It was because someone else was suffering, hurting, wounded, broken, estranged from their family. He, he was, he, it was always about what, what they needed, never about what he needed. One time he was tempted. He was tempted to do something for himself and he refused. Because Jesus was Emmanuel, we, we sang that earlier today. It's one of the names for Jesus. It means God with us. It means God became flesh and dwelled among us, as John chapter 1 says. It means he is with us, God with us. Because he was and is Emmanuel, when Jesus grew tired, because he was in a human body, when he grew tired, he slept, he rested, but he did not sleep in a palace befitting a king but in a boat or on the ground or in someone else's home. Nowhere in this book, nowhere in this book does it record Jesus owning anything more than the clothing that he wore. Yet again, in John chapter 1, it says that through him, all things were made. Think about that. The, 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 the material that you're sitting on right now in that pew, uh, the, the, the vehicle that you drove here, God created all of that. John chapter 1 says, Jesus, there was nothing made that has been made without him making it. Jesus is the creator. So therefore, even though the Bible says he owned nothing other than perhaps the clothing that he wore, he really owns everything. It's all his, folks. It's all his. Everything that you have, everything that you've earned, everything that you could possibly possess, it's already his. Because he's the creator. God owns everything. That's the reason, one of the reasons why we praise him. It's one of the reasons why we worship him. It's one of the reasons why, God, everything that I am, everything that I have, everything that I accomplish, it's because of you. And therefore, I will worship you and I will praise you. It says here in this book that Jesus willingly went without food. On a number of occasions, for at times long periods of time. Yet more than once, this is the contrast, yet more than once he miraculously fed thousands of people. It's amazing. Jesus would go without food, but when he saw someone else without food, he wanted to do something about it. This is the one that we serve. This is the one that we praise. We're so familiar with these with these events, with these stories, that we forget the wonder of them. Two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, record how Jesus was horribly tempted by Satan himself. Every one of us here this morning, every one of us have been tempted. But think about being tempted by Satan himself. How would you respond if Satan himself showed up in your home at the foot of your bed and began to tempt you? showed up in your car, and he can't be everywhere, he's not like God, but I mean, if Satan, he's a created being, but if he came to you, think of being tempted by Satan himself. Jesus was tempted by Satan himself repeatedly. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every conceivable way. I tell people, people often come to me and they say, <coughs> I've been tempted by this, and, 
it's something you know really unusual. And I and I say uh, Jesus Jesus was tempted in that way. They said no way. No, yes, Romans, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4, you can look, it says he was tempted in every way, and yet then it adds this, yet he did not sin. So he was tempted, but he never gave in to the temptation. In 33 years of walking this earth, he never once gave in to the temptation. This is one of the reasons why we praise him. This is one of the reasons why we worship him. Never gave in. The Bible tells us that the Son of God sighed. He, he would see something. On, on several occasions, he sighed. He would look at something or hear something, and he would go, you ever do that when you're facing something hard? You all of a sudden get a, the news, and you go, Jesus did that. Jesus sighed. The Bible tells us that Jesus sweated. The Bible tells us that Jesus wept. He cried. Maybe even sobbed. Jesus had dirty feet from walking dusty trails. Think of that. God had dusty feet from walking dirty trails. He told stories that captured crowds. He asked questions that penetrated their hearts. That is the person that we praise. That is the person that we praise. In a garden called Gethsemane, Jesus chose his Father's will over his own. Wow. We're so familiar with it. But we overlook the wonder of it. Jesus had the opportunity to choose his will over his father's. That, that wouldn't be considered sin. It wasn't a violation of, of some commandment. It wasn't something that would, that would break relationship. But it says <coughs> that he chose his father's will over his own. He allowed himself to be arrested. When they declared him a criminal, he said nothing. When they falsely accused him, he did not defend himself. And Jesus never quit. Think of it. In those 33 years, facing things more than are what even are recorded, facing temptations that would, that would shock you, facing pain and heartache that must have been overwhelming at times. Jesus never quit. When he was punched and spit upon, when he was mocked and stripped and whipped and humiliated, and when he was crucified and cursed at, and when he was rejected, in the wonder of it all, don't forget that Jesus never quit. He kept moving forward when it was so difficult that he did not feel in, in, the, in the physical like he could go on. He kept going on. When others said, go ahead and stop, he didn't stop. He kept moving forward. Jesus did not quit. We sang earlier, I know the reason the Savior is born. Jesus was not born simply to give us a beautiful scene at Christmas time. 
Jesus was not born simply to give us a nativity set in our homes. Jesus was born so that Jesus could die for you and for me. This is the Lord that we serve. In your familiarity of it, don't overlook the wonder of it. And then, on that cross, with a, an appearance so marred, so, so wounded, the Bible says that, that he was hardly recognizable even as a man. He was brutalized flesh. And on that cross, the one who personified life died. I mean, what a contrast. The one who personified life itself died. Now, what was essentially his funeral? Just a few people attended. And Jesus' body, Jesus' body, <clears throat> which 33 years before had been gently placed in a borrowed manger, now lifeless, was gently placed in a borrowed grave. <laughs> a borrowed grave. But then again, why buy a grave if you're only going to be there for a few days? That is the person we worship. That is the person we worship. That is the person we praise. In your familiarity, and the longer you've been in this, the more we familiar we become to it. But in your familiarity of the story, the true story of Jesus, don't overlook the wonder of what he did, the wonder of what he accomplished. This is the person we worship. This is the person we praise. And then, then on the third day following, Jesus rose from the dead. Hallelujah. He declared victory over darkness. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Jesus had crushed Satan's head. He had torn the veil. He won the victory, and he is the one that we praise this morning. He's worthy of our praise. I get it. I get it. I, I, I understand Romans chapter 1. I know how mankind... <laughs> excuse me, is given to worshiping ourselves. I know how we're given to worship. People say, oh, I'm worried about worshiping Satan. Listen, Satan's fine if you just worship yourself because that's what a lot of people worship. It's not something else or someone else. More than anything, we worship ourselves. I know how mankind is given to worshiping ourselves or other people or other things. Again, that's what Romans chapter 1 is all about. But our worship as followers of Jesus Christ, our worship and our praise must go only to Him. And our hope, well, that's what we need. That's what we need in our world. People need hope. They're finding it, trying to find it in all the wrong places, but our hope and our peace and our identity must be found in Him alone, for Jesus alone is God. He's God. Jesus is God. God came and lived on this earth. God walked those, ro those roads. God touched broken and hurting and wounded 
people. God suffered. God gave his life for you and for me, and he alone is worthy of our praise. Hallelujah. Earlier in this service, just a few minutes ago, we did not simply sing some songs. When, when, when we stood and we lifted our voices or we lifted our hands, I hope you did not simply go through some religious motions. Sometimes that's what we do. Well, here it is. It's the time, and I'll just go ahead and stand here. And while everyone else sings, maybe I'll sing along. But no, that's not what that. We're not just singing a song. We're praising the one who gave himself for us. We praise the one who saves. We praise the one who restores. We praise the one who supplies. Praise the one who comforts. And we praise the one who heals. We praise the one who takes us to heaven when this life is over. We worship the one who was and who is and who is to come. A few moments ago, we looked at Romans chapter 1 and we read from there. But I don't want to finish there. I mentioned earlier that Romans chapter 1 is there's some darkness there. It's, it's some sadness. It's truth. But I don't, want to, I don't want to stay there. I want to finish with the chapter, 10 chapters later, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, I want to read verses 33 through 36. In fact, would you stand with me wherever you are? Just go ahead and stand right now. Stand with me. And here in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, I want, us, I want us to declare this with our voice. With our voice, I want us to declare this together. So, out loud, let's declare this. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. And uh, in this Christmas season where the busyness is high and the time that we have is low. While there are still so many preparations and while I must say that while this season is often strenuous, it's particularly strenuous after the year that we've had. But in this time, I want us to declare again that Jesus is God. I want us to declare again that, that he's the one who builds us. It begins with these words. The song that we're about to sing begins with these words. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. 
He's worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. He's worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. So I want us to get some perspective here. What you're going through is important. What you have battled through is important. What God has brought you through and delivered you from, all of it important. But it's because of Him. In a few moments, I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to sing this. Also, at the close of this service, if you have not yet met this Savior, He's not just a picture on a wall or a little baby in a nativity scene. He's the one who came and died for you. Maybe you're watching or listening this morning. Say, man, I'm, these are things that I've never really even thought about. I, I just, he's just, just this little, you know, one-dimensional person on a page. No, he's not. He's real. And if, if you want to respond, there's a place there where you can respond as well. We want to pray with you. We want to connect with you. Sing this together and let's sing it out. Just go ahead and sing it out. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever bring.
if and when we place our hope in you, when we build our lives upon you, we will not be shaken. We have that promise. Lord, I thank you again for coming in that most familiar of stories. Lord, we see the wonder that God loved us enough to come live, serve, touch, heal, to deliver, to die, to be raised from the dead so that we might live forever. Lord, may I never overlook the wonder of that. May I never move beyond the, the sense of urgency that I have to get that wonderful, incomparable message to people lost without it why we're here, why we're a body of believers. It's why you've called us and saved us. Help us, Lord, to get this message out. I thank you, Lord, for my brothers and my sisters. And in the days ahead, the next few days, Lord, as they gather with loved ones and travel some miles, I ask your blessing upon them, that you guard them and keep them as you continue to touch them and sustain them and encourage them through a, a very challenging time for many. Lord, would you, would you work miracles, miracles of all kinds? I thank you. So Lord, your blessing upon us. We pray these things in the incomparable name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I want you to go in the presence and in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs>